welcome to are we podcast a yet episode the fifth episode but number four yes um yeah i think we we, we took a bit of a uh, small break these days uh, given the situation around the world but um we're trying to catch up um so today we have an amazing guest again uh welcome to the show jane thank you so maybe uh, give a quick introduction to the to the audience. Um, I'm pretty sure some of the people uh, in the Rust community know you and saw your videos and everything. But it'd be nice to, you know, introduce uh, to 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 the people who are listening. Okay. Well, my name is Jane Lesby. Um, my tag on GitHub and Discord and all the various places on the internet is Yasi. Um, I am a hobbyist Rust programmer. I've been doing Rust for two years. Um, professionally, I do C++. Um, and I've been pretty involved in like error handling in Rust recently. So I've been working on improvements for the error trait and potentially getting error return traces and a bunch of other stuff that I'm pretty excited about. So what's what's up with the with your internet tag? Is it yeah, C or is it yeah, C? <laughs> There is a, uh, it's, it's, it's got a, like a kind of a long history, but the ya is actually mm -hmm. based on a Japanese kana that looks like the letter P and the okay. C was added because, um, ya was taken on Twitter. <laughs> and so I needed a, a character that would disambiguate it while still being like long enough or like short enough where I was happy with it. And okay. C, C and then an underscore was the only one that was like available that was good. And so in my mind, it's like C as in Rust C, like the compiler. So it's yeah. like Yasi. Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> nice. <laughs> because I, I was wondering, because I was looking through your uh, your uh, GitHub profile and then I saw C++ and then maybe there is a link here. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> so what what? I Go was ahead, actually jealous because, like, your your blog is on a .dev domain, and so you know, and those became available, and the gold rush was happening. I wanted to buy one, and so I wanted to buy something short, and I couldn't come up with anything, so I didn't. And so <laughs> you did. It was like, oh, that's nice. Yes, I got it. I think as soon as they came out, and I, I like it a lot. Nice. So you you're writing C plus plus as a as your day job, right? And and. So can you Correct. can you tell us what what kind of projects that you're working on? Uh yeah, so my company is called Scale Computing. Uh we do clustered virtualization, so it's like um high uptime virtualization. It's basically a competitor of VMware, um hmm. but targeting like kind of small to medium scale businesses and trying to be like super easy to use. And I specifically work on the storage stack. We have like a storage daemon that provides a driver for libvirt um, mm -hmm. or back to driver that mm -hmm. does kind of all of the distributed disk access across the cluster. And I was involved in a two-year project to kind of make that a lot faster so we could use NVMe and like not actually have to communicate when we were writing to the remote disk so we'll be able to like write immediately without stepping on each other and so um that was a fun project and right now i'm kind of in between projects there but it's all done in c plus plus so okay so the the storage is uh, something similar to because i'm not familiar with the c plus uh, plus driven projects that much um is it something similar to hdfs or or is, is it uh, a bit uh, different 
I don't know exactly what that is, but I'm, you said FS, so I'm assuming that's a file system layer. So this yeah, yeah, it's a Hadoop is, distributed file system. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is um this is a block device. Oh, um, okay. So we 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 have like the VSD and then the RSD. VSD is a virtual storage device, and then RSD is a real storage device. And we rewrote the RSD layer to be mm -hmm. like a distributed RSD, so you could basically have like a real reference to a hard drive on a remote system on like real reference to that on every uh node in the cluster mm -hmm. and then the vsds are like um you just like create them and it's uh sparsely allocated and then just mounted to a vm so it just it just sees a block device that mm -hmm. it can put mm -hmm. whatever file system it wants on and then when it writes to any block on there we do the address translation and write it to two rsds on different nodes so there's like you know redundancy and yep. Et cetera, et cetera. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff about like making sure that data never gets lost. So like we journal and do all sorts of things. And, and like, how does that work with latency? Because if you're shelling out over the network, like latencies are, I mean, they can be short, but they're still uh, an order of magnitude higher than what you'd expect on something like plugged into the local to the machine. And so, because well, if it's a block device, like the kernel's thinking it's talking to something on the machine, and yet you're shipping it off on the network. Yeah. Um, well, the it's not distributed in the sense where it's like in different data centers. I mean, there is mm. we can do replication for for that, where it's like that's like lower or much higher latency. But they have um, a backplane where they're all like wired directly into each other. So it's it's like a rack. Of like a bunch of mm. servers just on top of each other, so I don't think the latency is like too big of a concern for us, mm. um, specific or specifically at that part of the system. Mm. So it's not really going out over Ethernet, or it's like it's is it like a different connection then, or, or it or is Ethernet. Well, okay. right now it's Ethernet, but we're moving towards um, NVMe over fabrics and RDMA, and I'm I'm mm. not like. That's a little bit lower level than yeah, like yeah. than I normally <laughs> work at. Like we kind of abstract over just like uh like a remote access, like hmm. right to a remote drive via iSCSI or NVMe or whatever. And hmm. um there's the, like some of the people on our team have done like performance stuff, but I haven't been very involved in that. Okay. Okay. So how did you how did you pick up Rust? Um so when I started at scale about two and a half years ago, we were doing, we had a test suite for the product called uh, the Canon, which would <laughs> test a build against all the various clusters in our lab. Um, and basically like, you know, shoot all the guns at it. And we wanted to make a physical button that you could press to fire the cannon. And okay. so we, we like, we're doing maker nights and we got together and we're like, okay, so like, do we want to be productive and use Python, which we all kind of know, <laughs> or do we want to have fun and try and write this in something new? And like rust was tossed out there and I had, I had heard of rust and I was kind of like paying attention vaguely to it because, mm -hmm. um, in my, one of my earlier jobs, one of my, my boss was very into functional programming and I had remembered like reading about rust before and seeing like, Oh, it syntactically, it looks like C plus plus, but, under the hood, it's actually much closer to ML, and I, yeah. so like that to me was like, oh, Ian would love this, and so I like uh, I voted to go with Rust, and we did the project in Rust, and 
I kind of got obsessed and really fell in love with the language and it just like spiraled out of control and I started using Rust for everything. Like completely replaced Python as a personal project language for me at that point. Hmm. So did you name the project the big red button? Or was that... it was just it was just the button. <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> the button. Well, I feel like that's a missed opportunity right there. But hey, um... it it was red. It was a big red button. If that if that makes it any better. Oh, it does. It does. It's like the little details do matter, you know. Um... Or, or is it like uh, when you press the button, it says, "Do not press this button again." <laughs> it's just gonna shout at you. Um, sadly, it we never actually got to the point where we used it. Like it worked. Mm -hmm. And then it just sat on a desk for a while and then eventually got shoved <laughs> into a drawer. So it, it never needed the feature for shouting at people because no one ever used it. <laughs> I think I, I have seen these buttons, the, the big red buttons, multiple times in, in different jobs. And I mean, the day when you, when you put it into quote-unquote production, and then it's awesome. And then slowly they, they disappear into obscurity and yeah. they just disappear. <laughs> <laughs> the, the novelty wears off pretty quickly. Yeah, it's a tragedy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the nice part is, I mean, that that uh, got you started on Rust, so... Yes. <laughs> it's not a total uh, total failure yet. <laughs> it's definitely had, a, I think, a pretty positive impact on my career, so... <laughs> so how do you how do you contrast uh, uh, Rust development with... Uh, because it seems like uh, you're familiar with Python as well, and maybe several other languages... And C plus plus mainly. So, how, mm -hmm. how do you how do you when, when you compare them? What is the difference that you find? I would say the biggest difference is just like kind of ease of developer experience. Like Python is good, and especially like good for starting. And I feel, but I feel like Rust is like similarly good when you're like creating a project, so long as you already know the language. Whereas mm -hmm. like C plus plus, starting a new project is kind of like. An, an acquired skill um, because like there is a lot of setup required and there's no kind of standard for build systems and like uh, cross-platform support is something that I don't even know how to it's it's very <laughs> difficult if you're not yeah. like very specifically planning on that from the beginning um, and mm -hmm. so for me Rust just feels like the tools don't fight you um, everything is kind of made to work together and standardized and works pretty well for everything. And it's 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 kind of like a breath of fresh air, I would say, compared to the other languages I've worked with. Yeah. Hmm. And, and in terms of language features, do you miss something? Did you gain something in Rust compared to, I don't know, Python or C++? Um, I don't miss much, honestly. Hmm. Like, there's definitely some cases like with python specifically where you can just like find libraries for obscure yeah. things much more easily than in rust yeah. like if you want to like i wrote an uh, a program to find uh or compare apartments based on how good the commute would be versus the price and a bunch of other factors and i like set it up to scrape from craigslist and there was just like a python library that would pull in <laughs> listings from craigslist and um, with Rust, you have to go and like get the like Selenium or whatever like HTTP parsing yeah. framework and like figure it out yourself and basically construct the Craigslist parser. So it's like one tier removed, and it's not that much work, but mm. it's it's it that is nice. It's it's nice to have kind of like the more mature 
library ecosystem, though in my experience, most of the programs that I do want to write in Rust, the library ecosystem is already there. Yeah. Um, and with C++, I am i don't miss much, honestly. I feel like um, a lot, I'm, I'm happy that a lot of things are gone from C++. Mm -hmm. Like there, there are features that get in my way more than help. Mm. So if you if you see, I mean, obviously Rust is, uh, as you said, I think they, there is a significant emphasis on programmer experience. Uh, mm -hmm. Would that be a good good thing to say? Like, yes, having, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I know you you've been contributing to lots of projects and in Rust community, right? So can you give us some ideas about what what type of things are there and how did you get started? Because usually. I think for most of the people contributing to uh, systems level languages like this it is a bit of a kind of a hesitation, right? It's not like a Python code, small library or something. Uh, yeah. So um, I, I, I guess I'd wanted to like get involved in uh, like open source contributions for a long time, like well before I got involved with Rust, but never could for like reasons, mm. like you said, like it's kind of intimidating, especially with C++, there's not that much like of a library ecosystem. Like there are lots of libraries out there, but they're all kind of like their own little islands. Yeah. Um, and I guess for Rust specifically, the thing that like pushed me to really start contributing was the emphasis on community within like, and like having a code of conduct, making it feel like everything like i knew if i went and contributed to a project that i would mm. have like a good experience interacting with strangers on the internet which is not something that i feel like yeah. i would generally assume in most programming language communities mm. um and then there's also like i remember distinctly this week in rust was very helpful and kind of con convinced me to really get started because like I didn't know where to start. And then this week in Rust had like the call for participation section, which would always like have some little helpful things. And I was like, especially when I was learning Rust at first, I was like very avidly reading like everything I could, like every episode of this week in Rust, every, mm -hmm. every post on Reddit, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this is like before I even got on Twitter, like my Rust friends got me into Twitter. Um, <laughs> and I, that's like, that's like my friends got me onto heroin, but, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but eventually there, <laughs> there was a like a couple of like easy looking issues that popped up on this weekend rest that I just like went ahead and did and mm. kind of got into eventually like contributing to Clippy, which mm. result and I was going to meetups at the time and kind of how I like met Manish and some of my other friends in the Bay Area who were like heavily involved in Rust. And that kind of spiraled into like getting a lot more comfortable with contributing, especially GitHub. Like one of the advantages of the Rust community, which I think it's not really, I guess it's not really an advantage, but it's like something that is very consistent is everyone uses like pretty much the same tools and same setup. So it's really easy yeah. to jump from like project to project on yeah. GitHub. Mm. And so just kind of like the, like the uniformity of everything made it really easy to like just jump in, jump around and yeah put your fingers in everything yeah that's true but so um you're also focused on we're just looking at uh, your your project so you're focused on error handling right in, in mm -hmm. rust um so can you give us some idea uh about error handling in general in rust and what uh what your uh philosophy around these these libraries that you're building um yeah so 
My general philosophy boils down to, um, and I'm actually giving a talk on this at RustConf, so uh, ah, it's a spoiler can alert. That. Yes, <laughs> is that there are um, basically two classes of like error handling that people want to do, which is like actually handling the errors where like you match on it or something and respond programmatically or and this is ignoring panics like there is the entire i'm just talking about like runtime error handling and there's Mm. error reporting which is when you want to like report it to the user and my my kind of big take is that these are not uh distinctly separated it when people are talking about error handling and is something that is kind of a source of confusion and Mm. Um, so I'm trying to push people to think about like the difference between errors and error reporters and kind of make that distinction. Um, and so like anyhow, error, that type from that library is, in my opinion, an error reporter, not itself an error, um, mm-hmm. though it can be u- used to create errors and wrap them. Um, and <sighs> lost my train of thought for a second. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Um, <laughs> You were sort of saying like there's a difference between like handling an error, you know, like uh, an expected, you know, runtime error, and then like reporting back to the user. And yes. uh, I was kind of reminded me sometime um, uh, on something you find in HTTP and how the different HTTP libraries handle this. For example, with a 404, mm-hmm. right? That this is like considered an error code in the HTTP spec, but it's you know it's not really an error it's just like a system mm. state you want to report on but it's very much expected like your this object's not here you know mm-hmm. um and then like some client libraries will model this as an error and some will just model this as a response which has you know multiple different things which is like well you actually got some data you got you've got the not found or it's malformed or whatever and like that falls into more of the reporting Right. So, yeah. and like where, and, and there's a bit of a gray zone because it's not, we, we use the word error for everything, but yeah, it's not really all the same, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And I think um, kind of one of the things is that the error trait specifically exists to kind of bridge this gap between errors and error reporters. Like, I think pretty much all the functions except for the downcasting on the error trait exist so that you can access context about errors that are intended for the reporter. So like when you get the the message, Mm. when you use like the display trait, which is like the bound on the error trait, that is accessing the message. And when you you use the backtrace function, you're trying to access a backtrace that may have been captured by one of the errors deeper in the stack rather than Mm. the reporter capturing it, like what Anyhow does by default, but Anyhow won't capture the error if it sees that the previous error already captured it. Um, mm. And then, like the source method is trying to access the context about where an error came from, so the reporter can print like a chain of errors. And so, mm. all of this kind of exists to bridge the gap and make it so you can have these nice reports where the reporter can like structure the error messages and the backtrace and everything exactly how it wants without the errors having to like consistently format it so you get a nice report in the end. Mm. So. Compared to, I mean, of course, Python has a uh, exception handling sort of uh, way, mm-hmm. um, and I'm not familiar that much with C++. I think C++ has exceptions as well. Yes. Um, so, how how do you compare uh, these these error handling in Rust compared to these two languages? Um, I definitely. So I'm 
It's been a while since I messed with Python, so I don't actually yeah. know Python as well as I do, uh, like, say, Rust and C++. But I would say mm. that Rust has probably the best error handling story of the languages that I've worked with um, mm -hmm. currently, and I think it's still getting better. Because, um, like, with with C++, you have std exception, which is, I think, kind of, like, the reporting interface equivalent to the error trait, but all it allows you to do is just get a string out of an error. Yeah. Um, uh. So like the, the interfaces are already kind of more rich just because of the type system in Rust. And then mm. the fact that you have result and all of your errors are kind of like explicitly typed, I feel like makes it a lot, a lot easier to make sure that you handle them and everything. And so it all it, it it works together very nicely in a way that I feel like other languages currently don't have. For me, like the error handling is one of the things that I absolutely love about Rust, and I also absolutely hate about it. Um, <laughs> um, it's like it it um, I mean, you said like the type system makes makes it really elegant to find out what happened and handle it. But sometimes I'm also just sort of like, yes, I know this can blow up. Just just let me do my thing you know mm. <laughs> so it's a uh, yeah um but it's it's definitely uh, for me a selling a selling feature that's like i like that the language also sort of forces you to think about these you know like this gives back a result you know like it may not be what you think it is yeah absolutely it's it's definitely i think a positive even though i think it's something that people get confused a lot very often and, and it's definitely like a common pain point i think it's more to do with the fact that error handling is just complicated than specifically Rust's error handling is complicated. Mm -hmm. I think that other mm -hmm. languages have a tendency to ignore the complexity in error handling in a way that yeah. Rust does not. So it, it brings it up to the to the top of the stack, so to uh, so to speak. Yeah, it kind of so it's it's front and center that you have yes, to handle it exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Uh, so the, I was looking at different uh, crates that you built so far. Mm -hmm. um, so what does the Air Tools crate do? So what, what is the project, uh, or what, what is the pitch for the project? Uh, so that's kind of uh, a new thing that I'm working on right now. That's kind of uh, like iter tools for errors, which yeah. is basically just trying to expose useful helper functions or extensions on error handling that um, are widely applicable and like mm -hmm. can kind of be built on top of the error trait. Um, so right now it does serialization. So you can like it like will generally serialize an error via the error trait. Like it will grab its message. It will grab its source and recursively do that and kind of turn it into whatever serialization format you want. And you can deserialize it, deserialize it on the other end um, which was asked for by Tony Arici, I think is how you pronounce his name. Um, okay. And then there is also, what is the other thing? There's like chain downcast. So mm -hmm. one of the things that you'll like in Go, I think you can downcast an error and it will downcast to that regardless of which error in the source chain the error is. And with Rust by default, it's only doing the outer one. Like you have to go to the source and try and downcast that if you mm. want to get, um, if you want to like try and find it anywhere in a chain of errors. And that's definitely like an inconvenience. I think generally um, one thing that Rust error handling doesn't handle very well 
is open sets of handleable errors. So like you have like open sets versus closed sets. So a closed set would be an enum, an open mm-hmm. set would be the trade object. Um, but it's not very easy to kind of match on a trade object right now. And that's something that I would like to see improve, but I think it's kind mm. of like still in far in the distance before we get any like real help on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the error tools trait tr- or crate tries to a- uh, add a chain downcast, which will like start at the root error and try and downcast that to the type. And if that fails, it'll go up one higher and downcast again and does that. So it basically provides the same interface that Go has for mm. downcasting. I think there's like one other thing in there, but I don't remember what it was. Uh, if I remember <laughs> it, but it's basically just like, random little helpers that are useful and I'm trying to keep it like very lightweight so you can not feel guilty if you pull it into your library because it just like doesn't add any compile time so okay yeah that's cool so um what what is display doc uh so that is um basically it takes the the display logic from this error where like yeah. you can just put the variable inside of the curly braces mm-hmm. and it will like use that to interpolate in the string as if it were like a format and it was like in the arguments list and mm-hmm. it l- literally just like takes that exact code and instead of reading the attribute with like that's like leading with error it just reads the document attribute of oh. that uh oh. that a node in the AST. And so instead of using your um, like error attributes, you just like actually use doc comments to put your display methods on errors. And it's mostly meant for errors and it's only it's not it's, it's not that good for anything beyond like a simple error enum. Like if you have if you're trying to union a lot of sources or if you're trying to have like complex context that you're capturing as well, I think it doesn't work very well because you generally don't want a lot of formatting in your doc comments. Like the, you'll get yeah. the curly braces mm. in the end doc comment. But if you're just actually having messages that don't really have variables being interpolated into it, it's very nice because I, f- I find that it's often like you end up with very good documentation and error handling both because like when you're thinking about what fits well into both places, you end up putting something that's like very descriptive. Mm-hmm. So I, I see that this is a macro, right? It provides uh, some sort of a macro to to handle this. Yeah, it's a proc macro. Yeah. yeah. So can can you tell us like uh, what, what macros are in Rust and then how they work? Because we, I think <laughs> if, I'm, I'm a bit more familiar with uh, with Lisp side of it. Um. Yeah, so macros in there's two systems of macros in Rust. There's macros by example, which is kind of like the classic macro underscore rules. Mm-hmm. And then there are procedural macros. And this is a procedural macro. Um, procedural macros work by you like write a library and mark it as a procedural macro. And then you have to like give it a special function that takes a token stream and returns a token stream. And mm-hmm. the compiler will see all those libraries. And anytime it sees the attribute, you tell the compiler um, is associated with your macro. It will take all of the the code that was like annotated or all the the ASD that was annotated with that macro and will pass it into that function. And then from that function, you can transform the code however you like. Um, 
And usually you end up using sin and quote, which are libraries um, that mm -hmm. basically re-implement all of the syntax tree parsing stuff internal to Rust C, but in a more stable way. And mm -hmm. you use those to manipulate the AST and kind of like be like, hey, find me the uh, the attribute on this object or let me like iterate through its fields or whatever. Like it represents code as objects yeah, basically yeah. and lets you use them, replace them. And then quote lets you kind of like write Rust syntax that is basically like inserting the variables back in like a format that's generating an abstract syntax tree as well or a token stream as well. Okay. So how hairy it is to get into uh, Rust compiler, for example. Say that again. So how, how difficult or hairy is the Rust compiler? If, you, if somebody wants to dig into the code and then understand the, the compilation process, especially these AST generation and tokenization and everything. Um, I would say it's not particularly difficult. Um, it's a little bit more difficult just based on the fact that it doesn't use like the exact same build tools that the rest of the ecosystem does. Like it, yeah. it has this, it has this uh, build script called x.py that is mm -hmm. what you use when you're invoking in the compiler everywhere. And so there's a little bit of like documentation reading, but it's very well documented. And mm -hmm. it, in my experience, it just works. I have definitely mm -hmm. seen people <laughs> who are like on different versions of Linux that are like maybe not Ubuntu, where they try and use x.py and everything explodes. Um, <laughs> and I remember like a Twitter exchange between Luna and Eddie like months ago where um, Luna was just like having the worst time trying to compile. But Eddie, who is another like very active contributor on the compiler, was like extremely helpful and like mm -hmm. like giving lots of feedback and really helping get involved, get the problem fixed. And so I would say it's definitely accessible, if mm -hmm. not only because um, the people who work on it are very helpful and very like quick to assist if you have any problems. Okay. I mean, because compiler development is always, uh, I think, uh, a bit different than contributing to a web app or something, right? You know, yes. There is, there is a certain level of uh, skill needed or understanding of the computer science fundamentals needed a bit to, to, to get into uh, compiler development. I don't know. I mean, there's def I don't think that's actually necessarily that true, personally. Like, mm. it's, it's definitely... There's a part where it's like designing compilers and like making good ones that like really handle errors well and give you like good diagnostics and like making a good compiler is definitely something that requires like a lot of knowledge about compiler design. But I feel like just like jumping into a completely like working project that's like already well designed and just like modifying it is actually yeah. usually um, not nearly as challenging. Um, and doesn't I don't think it requires a, a computer science background personally. I think if you're like if you know programming, you know the language, you yeah. can hop into a web project. You can also hop into the compiler and like add a lint or mess with the lint. Um, yeah. It's it's really actually quite accessible. And even if you don't do it, like the like if your solution to how you would like change it is not the best solution, it's still like they do code review. You're not like you're not flying blind. You have people helping you and will, who will guide you to a better solution. So it's actually, yeah. in my opinion, a very good way to learn. Like I've done um, a bit of contribution to Cargo, which is not the compiler, but yeah. um, as a like kind of as part of Clippy, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely have learned like a lot about like Rust development and like kind of like how to structure the code and how to use a lot of standard library APIs to like the best effect just from kind of like getting involved in this code that's like maintained as part of by the Rust team. Like it's a really good way to learn in my experience. So I definitely wouldn't want to discourage people who don't already know these things from getting involved. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a very good thing to do personally. And there's probably also like a lot of low hanging fruit in, in projects this size, right? I mean, the scope's quite large. There's always, you know, some, if, if, if you're just getting started, some stuff around the edges, which can, which can use some polish, right? Absolutely. So, and yeah, they, they, they do a good job of marking issues, like good first issue and putting mentoring comments on it. So it's, it's not too hard to find stuff to work on. It is a little bit difficult with GitHub and how, like specifically on the Rust, uh, the Rust repo, because yeah. uh, they're like, it has over 5,000 issues and it just stops counting at that point. So <laughs> it's not uncommon to go onto the issue tracker and like try and find an issue and see a bunch of ones with comments that are like a month old saying, I'd like to work on this and being very mm-hmm. unclear which ones you can grab. And so I, I do think that like there needs to be some improvements there, but it's, it's kind of difficult. I think the Rust project in general right now is kind of at capacity with how much they can do. And so... It's kind of just one of those things that we have to live with for right now, where it's like you just have to do a little bit of digging if you want to find something to work on. But I think if you just ask, like go into mm. the Discord and ask, like, hey, I want I want to contribute. Can someone help me find an issue? Then there are definitely people who are very skilled at navigating the issue tracker and who know where the things that need work that are easy to work on are sitting and can find them for you. Yeah. So you, you said you uh, contributed to, or maybe still contributing to uh, Cargo and Clippy, right? So um, mm-hmm. for the people who don't know what those tools are, um, mm-hmm. maybe maybe some beginners listening to this. Of course, I'm a beginner as well. Mm-hmm. So maybe can you give some uh, quick explanation of the, what those tools are? Sure. Okay. So um, Cargo is kind of the main build system for the Rust programming language that is provided by the Rust team, um, and it, yeah. it, it manages kind of like pulling in your dependencies and linking them all together and invoking the compiler on everything and setting up your tests and invoking external tools. It's kind of like the glue that holds the entire ecosystem together and is why the developer experience is as nice as it is. Mm. Um, Clippy is the, a linter, so it like kind of catches common mistakes in your code for you. Um, and it is essentially the Rust compiler. It links against the Rust compiler and uses internal APIs and basically just adds more of the exact same lints that exist in the compiler. Um, mm. And it is a bit more accessible than the compiler, I would say. It's definitely a lot easier to kind of get involved in Clippy. Um, I think the build times and turnaround for like doing development on Clippy is a lot faster than doing it on the compiler. But I have not actually done a ton of like development on like Clippy lints. I've mostly been involved in um, Clippy fix and getting mm-hmm. that kind of pushed across the finish line, which is why I've actually like, even though I'm like on the Clippy team, almost all of my Clippy contributions have been to Cargo, like in specifically like mm-hmm. adding features to Cargo that Clippy needs in order to do everything it wants to do. Okay, so. Um... 
because you you also mentor beginners right so where do you see people are maybe uh, you're part of one of these uh, awesome rust mentors uh, uh yes i maintain yeah. the list yeah yeah and and um, so where, where do you see people who are who are beginning with rust struggle a bit um i would say kind of like exp- like exploring the ecosystem is kind of something mm-hmm. that's a bit of a challenge that people often like I, i get a lot of questions like what crate should i use for this and what crate should yeah. i use for that and then i think um i personally get a lot of people who are interested in error handling like coming to me for when they like want uh mentorship yeah um but in general i don't i don't know i don't see too much trouble with people who like people who are coming to me are mostly like just looking to get involved in the community and i'm just like try and be encouraging and be like yeah do this project's great like or you can do this and then you can write you should write a blog post about it. just try and be an encouraging person so it's yeah. more about like i would say being kind of a a cheerleader than being a problem solver <laughs> when that that's encouraging people to to uh think about solutions right so that's uh, mm-hmm. uh so um what kind of tools that you use like what ides or like how do you set up your environment or um i use vim personally so mm-hmm. well, neo vim specifically and uh rust analyzer with mm-hmm. coc.nvim which is like um co- complete so conquer of completion i think yeah. is what coc stands for mm-hmm. um and I use um Vim dispatch and a bunch of other plugins and kind of just have a a Vim setup that I've been maintaining since college. I've been okay. trying to switch to VS Code recently um because yep. there's a lot of kind of like the code lenses and a lot of the integration with Rust Analyzer is much tighter because the the main developer who's working on it um I think uses VS Code and so is that's kind of where a lot of the focus is. But mm-hmm. um I I've consistently kind of like I try it for 10 minutes and then I get frustrated because of how much slower I feel and I can't navigate as quickly and there's just like like what's the thing to like just jump to the next buffer I can't like there's just like some some simple commands where I can't seem to find or remember the key binds and then recently mm-hmm. um code over, like the type overlays just suddenly started working in NeoVim mm-hmm. which kind of was the one of the main things that I wanted and I've mostly just gone back. I like I've kind of given mm. up on VS Code for now, so I just use Vim. <laughs> I think this is this is sorry. But sorry I was going to say I like the the Vim key bindings in VS Code are not bad though because I I kind of know what you mean is like once they're in your fingers they're they're there right it's like it feels like your brain's not really involved in navigating the software it's like once you get mm-hmm. a hang of it. But I I I mean I get around in VS Code like you know once you install the Vim plugin it's not I mean super annoying but then again I'm not like a master Vim user myself either you know so Yeah like I have the I have the Vim plugin installed though it did take me like a day to get it working um No and the 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 problem isn't really the the key bindings within like the buffer like when i'm editing a file and when i'm looking at the file it's fine it's more about when like i'm trying to navigate between panes or open new folders and things uh, like that where the bindings are completely different or like launching the compiler and jumping between errors and 
like showing the errors in the buffer like it's the higher level features where it's just completely different um Hmm. and where i really like feel the friction and get frustrated and give up quickly all right (laughs) so by the way i mean uh, i see that you you name your project as iron i'm not sure if i'm pronouncing correctly jane iron and iron yes like so are you a fan of bronte sisters or, or... <laughs> uh, no i have not read that book um no it was, <laughs> it was uh my, my friend ted on twitter who commented i don't even remember what the context was but i think he said i should name something jane iron and i <laughs> it was just like the best idea ever and so um, I named my fork of anyhow ire kind of based on that. And then um, because like the the specific thing that that library is trying to solve is like customizability of anyhow error. Mm-hmm. Um, because with anyhow, you basically you get backtrace from stood if you're on nightly, but nothing else. And mm-hmm. um, I am a really big fan of this library called tracing, which mm-hmm. um lets you put instrumentation all throughout your code and um, build other libraries to like kind of use this instrumentation. And one of the libraries that's been built on this is called tracing error. And it captures something called a span trace, which is essentially a backtrace, but of custom instrumentation points. So it can mm-hmm. it builds a like a, a stack frame of spans that you've put in that can like associate runtime information. So you can see variable names and you can name the spans and like for what the units of work are rather than it just being your stack trace. Mm, And um, I really wanted to be able to like just implicitly capture span traces when I convert an error to anyhow, but anyhow didn't have support for this. And so what I ended up doing with error is removing the backtrace inside of like behind the pointer in anyhow and putting a generic parameter there for just any type of context and so you can override that generic with any struct that implements this like error context trait or ir context i always say error because that's what it is in my (laughs) mind but it's really ir Um, and so you do this like this trait that tells it how to default construct and then how to report based on itself and the error that it's associated with. And you can basically put anything there, other than anything, replace the backtrace. You can put a span trace and a backtrace in there. You can put a backtrace.rs backtrace so you can get backtrace on stable. You can remove the backtrace, but otherwise it behaves essentially the same as anyhow error. And it has all the same features where it's like one pointer wide and it lets you do the cool downcasts and all that stuff. Um, okay. And so Jane Eyre is a <laughs> custom context that you can put in there that has a span trace and has the specific features for the nice report that I want. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like, that's why it's Jane, because that's me. So it's my Eyre. <laughs> and then you can you can go and write your own context that captures all the things that you want. Like in HTTP status code, I've done a version like that, where like whenever you throw an error, it defaults mm-hmm. to putting a 500 status code. And then you have like an extension trait that you can use to set the status code when you're converting it, kind of like the dot context method on anyhow. And so it lets you build a kind of, I think, a lot more customized abstractions on top of anyhow to, yeah. while having all of the same features otherwise. Okay. 
Uh, so, so that's the because I, I was curious, like naming it Jane Eyre, and thinking maybe maybe there is some relationship with the with the literature. No, it's just a pun. <laughs> that's nice. I didn't know about the tracing libraries. I was quickly just looking looking it up because I, I really I've used tracing in other languages and other systems, um, mainly in the context of like uh, open tracing and like mm-hmm. distributed tracing. Yeah. This this. Uh, yeah, I was quickly going through the readme of tracing. This, this is amazing. Like, I like that type of instrumentation and uh, uh, yeah, pulling through. So, wow. Yeah, it is built on the exact same principles of open tracing and open telemetry, and uh, kind of it just builds on that abstraction within your process, but still kind of allows for like cross-process, um, like cross-network abstraction of like units of work and and like sending those IDs of units of work so you can associate more work with them remotely. And it has already integration with all those libraries. So you can get like tracing open telemetry, tracing honeycomb, et cetera. These are all libraries that already exist. And there are steadily more and more of them. Um, I contributed to tracing error. I've also done tracing flame, which mm-hmm. lets you get flame graphs from oh, um, nice. spans. And there's just like, it's, it's the best logging and instrumentation library in my opinion for rust and it really lets you build like all sorts of amazing things on top of it it's just a wonderful library yeah that's i guess it's it's like uh, i mean you know it, it feels like an evolved pokemon right where like initially you have the log you know and then kind of like that becomes you know it evolves into a trace and then like you get to all once you can link it across everything you know um so but i hadn't messed around with it in rust yet like this 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 makes a whole lot of sense, you know. Really, really. Um, thank you. Um, <laughs> gonna mess around, gonna mess around with that this weekend. Awesome. I think Jane just gave the example of you know people come to come to her for asking which credit should I use. <laughs> this is like the, <laughs> it's like, exactly. Yes. The, you should make a stamp just like Jane approved. You know, like somebody can put that. You know, with all the badges you have in the top of like the readme's, like you can have that next to it. Yes, yeah. that'll be super cool. <laughs> So um, I think still sp- speaking about you know uh, Rust features and everything. So uh, I just I was reading your blog post about the um, new try functions or something. Mm-hmm. Let's try to talk about try. Yeah. Yes, let's try to <laughs> talk about try. <laughs> so can can you give us your your you know uh, view on that? Like what wh- what is it trying to do and and uh, what is upcoming? Yeah, so the the Lang team is currently in the process of finalizing the TriBlock proposal, which has kind of been sitting around for a couple of years. And what TriBlocks do is basically it like puts you inside of the result. If you if you're familiar with do notation in Haskell, yeah, in Haskell I'm yeah. told that it is very similar where it's like you're inside of an effect. Mm-hmm. And so um when you use uh, the question mark operator in a try block, it exits with an error. And then the last expression, which is like a return for like functions normally, or blocks in general, um, is implicitly inside of OK. So it lets mm-hmm. you, it does OK wrapping um, automatically for you. So you don't have to like write a lot of kind of extra boilerplate to make sure that like you don't have to do the OK parentheses, parentheses, parentheses. Yeah, at yeah. the end of every function. And it just it's, tries to be ergonomic. It tries to scope where errors get captured. So you can mm. kind of just like work with error handling a little bit easier. 
Okay. Yeah, I'm not entirely convinced though. Um, <laughs> it's like may, maybe maybe it's because it reminds me way too much of Java, but and 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 exception handling there, which is not fun. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I I don't know. Like I find that it adds about as much boilerplate as it takes away. It's like okay, wrapping's not that hard. Um, in my opinion, I don't know. Um, I maybe. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know, it's definitely not doing a lot. I definitely think that the the scoping, the question mark operator is a very useful feature that people, like, people already use closures for that today. Hmm. Um, uh, and so that's kind of something that you can't really do without try blocks. The okay wrapping, I think, is less important, though I think it's a nice thing to have. Um hmm. And I don't know, it's, it's definitely um, a kind of one of the more controversial features. And I am less excited about it from the perspective of like, I don't really care too much about the okay wrapping, though I do think it's nice personally. Um, I am excited about the effects on propagation and yeah. specifically return traces, which is a thing that I'd like to add to Rust. And that adding much more context because like basically I want to be able to get back traces that are built from when you return errors, not from your your stack trace. And the try trait would interact with that and kind of give you like richer back traces that are like very efficient, I think, um, mm. in theory. And so I'm mm. excited about that. That's like that's the, what I care about when it comes to the try trait or the try mm. blocks, I guess. It's more, it's more of the yeah. try trait, but the try blocks do interact with it a bit. Yeah. So speaking of language features, so what features that you would like to see in Rust? Uh, in general, or like ones that I am like trying to write RFCs for? Because there's like okay, so in, in the general, things that you're pitching for, and then the things that you would like to have. <laughs> in general, I I really want all the things that are blocked by chalk integration. So chalk is the logic programming engine that's being written for the Rust compiler. Mm-hmm. And so it redoes all the trait solving that for the compiler in kind of like a as a library so that like Rust analyzer can use it, your random Rust code analyzing program yep. can use it, whatever. And um, Chalk, once it eventually gets into the compiler, will give us specialization, implied bounds, generic associated types, and impl type impl trait everywhere, just like existential types. And mm-hmm. I think all of these features and like a really a more robust kind of like trait system yeah. is like I'm very excited about. And I think it's gonna open a lot of doors to programs that couldn't already be written. And it's going mm-hmm. to I think clean up a lot of code and make um, a lot of boilerplate unnecessary because you can like you can represent the same thing much more concisely mm-hmm. with some of these features. And I think it'll actually, I think it's, it's kind of like a double-edged sword because you can definitely go much deeper into like excessive generics and make code that is just yeah. impenetrable <laughs> to a new person. But um, I'm more excited about how you could use this, this kind of like more expressiveness to write the same thing much more simply and kind of actually make code more accessible and easier to understand for people. And so I think mm-hmm. it'll I think it'll have a very positive effect on the ecosystem when that eventually lands. Um, mm. And then from a personal like things I would like to add, 
there are a number of error handling improvements that I have <laughs> my eyes on. Um, three RFCs that I'm planning on writing. One's already in progress, mm -hmm. which is um, generic member access for the error trait. So I've like touched on it earlier, how the error trait exists for error reporters, yeah. right? It's, mm -hmm. the, it's the interface by which you gather context, which was captured by errors for the final report to a user, not to be part of the error message for a specific error. Like you would capture a backtrace in the error, but you don't put it in your message. Um, and so there are like with span trace, I would like to be able to like iterate through all the errors. And if any of them captured a span trace, mm -hmm. I want to be able to extract it and use that instead of capturing one when it's converted to the report. Um, mm -hmm. And so that kind of is what inspired this, but the same feature is applicable to the return traces where like if all of your errors are capturing locations and they have like a, a list of locations, you could iterate through your errors and get basically the slice of the backtrace at each part of the stack as the error mm -hmm. like change types and build mm -hmm. that up and give um, context of everywhere the errors were and even like associate parts of the stack trace with what type of error it was at that time. So you could have like the outermost error and then all of the locations where it was propagated and then the next error down and then all the locations when it was like before that, when it was still the earlier type and kind of get this like intermixed, really nice context um, yeah. by accessing it through this generic member access function, which would act like, um, like the backtrace function, but instead of being like named and having the type hard coded, mm -hmm. it would um, utilize the any trait or possibly some like pointer and type ID casting if we want to support um, trade objects and unsized types. Yeah. To mm -hmm. uh, on the one like it would only be callable on trait on the the dyn error trait object, and then it would pass the type ID through the trait object because you cannot have generic functions on trait yeah. objects because of monomorphization. Like you can't have like, you can only have one entry in the list of functions. Mm -hmm. um, so it would pass the type ID to the single function that would then see, like look at the type ID and return a pointer to the correct member. And then in the other side, it would cast it to a reference. Uh, and it, all this would have like safety around it to make sure you can't like accidentally cast it to the wrong type. Yeah. And that would let you kind of get any any type out of a trait object, even like right now we're restricted to accessing context that is like available in the standard library or in core. But if we were to add this feature, we anyone could write their own context type that is like oh. useful to errors and you could use that. So you could get like a backtrace RS backtrace mm -hmm. on stable right now out of your leaf errors without having to put backtrace RS in the standard library. And you could do a span trace. You can do a core panic location uh, or whatever you want to do. So I'm excited about that. And then mm. error return traces are the next one. And that's going to be like the try trait would basically um, it uses specialization. It would pass the a location into your error every type, every time you get propagated through the try trait. And then mm -hmm. If by default, all types would just discard this, and then your error types could be like, you could implement the trait, specialize it, and instead of discarding it, you could store it internally. And that's how you would build up this like set of locations as you return up the stack. Every time you go through the try trait, you grab a new location. Um, yeah. And the last oh. RFC is uh, 
I want to add a third trait to std format for report, mm -hmm. which also specializes. So it would default to your debug implementation. But then when you want to like make your type reportable, you oh, you define the report type and you make like an actual error report. And that way you could have, I think, uh, a better distinction between um, what your debug format is and what your error report format is. Because right now, anyhow, error doesn't have a debug format. Like you can you can use kind of like the alternate format specifier to access it, but it's kind of like a, a sharp edge in error reporting. And so I'm, I'm trying to kind of clean that up a bit, though that's kind of the least important of all the changes I want to make, I would say. Okay. So it would it be something like uh, what do you mean by having a different format or for for reporting is it just for the errors it's going to have a different way of printing or uh yeah so it would be like a human readable report that is like printed when you panic or okay. when you um when you return from main instead of mm -hmm. right now it defaults to the debug implementation which you can make your type like you can have an error reporting type which debug implementation is always going to be a human readable format but that's kind of like contrary to the spirit of the debug trait. Like the debug trait is meant to be kind of like a like very like it's, it's like inspecting the state of the program and it's meant for programmers. It's meant to be very verbose. And yeah, so like yeah. you usually just want to use like the derived debug format mm -hmm. and like look at all the information. Um, but right now with error types, it's usually pretty useless. And so like when you get like a panic on an error type that's not been converted to this reporting type where it does the nice formatting, um, mm. everything is like very messy. You don't get your sources. You don't iterate through that context that's meant for the report. And so you, you end up um, getting a lot less information than you really need. Yeah. But um, with this reporting trait, you could just like all your errors could be could know how to report themselves independently of the debug trait, and you could know how to um, report from uh, main better. I think mm -hmm. so. It would be I think it would be a bit more consistent. Okay, so uh, so this first the first one is already uh, an RFC in uh, in uh, on GitHub already. Yes, it is a okay. it is a draft RFC right now. So I, yeah. I need to. I initially I've written I've written most of it out. Um, I initially did the the primary proposal based on the any trait, but mm -hmm. I'm planning on changing that around to the alternate proposal that my friend Nika uh, mm -hmm. came up with, mm -hmm. because the any trait does not. It requires that you have like a sized type, and um, it does not allow you to return things like slices or trade mm -hmm. objects. You can't like ask for a dyne iterator or um, mm. a any sort of list of anything, and that I think is okay. too big of a restriction on like the types of uh, values that you could access from the trait. Like you'd have to assume that if you want to get like a list of locations for this error return trace thing, you would have to like ask for a vec location, and everyone would have to like know to follow this kind of paradigm of storing it in the same type so that you know how to access it. Um, whereas if we had like this ability to use um, unsized types, then mm. you could just ask for an iterator and it would be much more flexible. And I think that um, it would, I think mm. that's important that I changed that part of the proposal to like really focus on that feature. So until I rewrite that it is still going to be 
a draft proposal and I've, I've just been sitting on it for a couple of weeks. So maybe this weekend. <laughs> oh, so do you have experience with um, other functional programming languages already? Because you're talking about Haskell and ML a bit. Um, so. I don't really. I, I have a lot of experience from like friends talking about it. And I get like told about features in Haskell. Like the, the, the comparison between the try trait and the do notation yeah. is not something I'm, I was capable of coming up on my own. Like I'm not familiar with do notation or what it does. It's like an insight my friend Kenny had. And so, yeah. like, a lot of this stuff is kind of um, things I've been told, not things I understand personally. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, um, are you a cat person or a fox person? Um, I, I have cats, but I like foxes. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess I'm, I'm both. I, 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 I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I was just looking at your Twitter profile and then there was like cats. I mean, of course, there are lots of cat stuff. And then there is this fox, uh, uh, how do you call that? Like a banner or something? Yes, yeah. The, that fox banner <laughs> um, has actually been there for the better part of a decade. Um, wow. <laughs> that was from way before I used Twitter. That was like when I made the account in college. And mm. uh, it was, I used to play a lot of Super Smash Brothers Melee, like competitively. Mm -hmm with my friends in college and mm -hmm. my character was Fox. Okay. And so kind of that, that got me, I guess kind of, I would use Fox everywhere. And then that kind of spiraled into like, I'm just enamored with foxes as animals. They're very cute. And <laughs> um, I have never changed it. I don't think I ever will. I kind of, it, it I enjoy the, the little bit of, old Jane just like sitting there always running like yes this is where you came from <laughs> that's nice do a battle roll say again <laughs> do a battle roll yes <laughs> that's that's fantastic so uh, Jane any other any other uh, projects that you want to highlight or, or talk about I know um, you're, you're involved in like a bazillion of, uh, of rust uh, projects so I can't think of any off the top of my head honestly um, but there, there are a lot of great projects out there. So, so any, uh, any shout outs that you want to give out to people who are super helpful on Rust community? Uh, yeah. So, uh, shout out to Eliza Weissman for writing the wonderful tracing crate and, um, really helping me improve as a programmer and Manish, uh, mm -hmm. who's a member of the core team who I kind of see as my rust mentor and he's kind of like definitely taught me a lot about mentoring and inspired me to start the awesome rust mentors project and to kind of like do talks and like give the give all the talks i've done is kind of like my number one cheerleader and then like kind of sanjay nika all of my friends who constantly like help me refine ideas and come up with these like solutions that are maybe not necessarily something that I was like skilled enough to come up with on my own, but have like really helped me like find how, how to do these things and build and learn. Nice. Yeah, that actually answers my question. So I was wondering, it's like when you were learning it, like did you like explicitly go look for a mentor given that you're you're leading this effort to mentor other people? So uh, no, it was, um, and this is like, I, I, this is, I give a talk at Colorado Gold Rust about this and I cry every time I talk about it. So I might cry again right now, but it was Manish 
who mm-hmm. kind of came up to me at the meetup. It was the, the Google meetup where Eliza was talking about her tracing library, which is where I learned about tracing and kind of like met my friends. And this is like, this is when I got into Twitter and all this stuff. Um, mm. um, I was just sitting there uh, in the kind of like the food area at the Google building and Manish walked up and was like, hey, you're Jane, right? And I'm like, yeah, like how? And internally, I'm like, how on earth do you know who I am? And he's like, uh, yeah, it's like, thank you for all your contributions to Clippy. And if you want like any more help, if you mm. want to contribute some more, just reach out. And that was like kind of the push I needed because I really did want to contribute more. But it was like, it was just kind of hard and hmm. like getting that encouragement, getting that acknowledgement and that thank you was like really big deal and kind of like pushed me to to work a bit harder or not work harder, hmm. but like get more involved and do the things that I had wanted to do, but I've kind of been having difficulty motivating for and like made me feel a lot more comfortable and less intimidated by all of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great story. Yeah, yeah nice. indeed. And and now you're you're doing I think uh fantastic work and in maintaining all these mentors and giving talks and and also introducing uh, focusing on error handling which is uh, probably i think uh, one of the interesting parts of <laughs> rust i would say yeah uh, coming from other languages especially so th- th- thanks a lot for uh, for you, for for your contributions and um, you know uh, it's it's really helpful yeah it's my um, pleasure thank you so um i think we are almost uh, yeah, I think one hour. Uh, we can yeah. we can keep continuing and then picking your brain, Jane. But you have to come back again, okay. um, and then we're gonna have. Uh, I think next time uh, we'll, we'll probably do the table reading of Jane Eyre. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I meant the, the Rust, you know, code, not not actual <laughs> book. So, you know, you know, you know, you had these. Um, th- at some point, you had these uh, Jane Austen uh, books, which were uh, uh, like. Which were I don't know made into sci-fi stories, you know. Oh. Uh, I, I, I I forgot the actual. Okay. Um, come on, it's like it goes like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. But in space, <laughs> no, oh, yeah, 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 like that type of stuff. So like they take excerpts of, um, of like the book, and then there's like I don't know a zombie part interspliced <laughs> the, the right way. They're, they're really quite funny, but it's just sort of thinking like, yeah. Uh, maybe you can do like chain error, but then like splice rust code in there, like just see where that lands. Uh, um, that that will be hilarious. I think writing. I think it's almost from eighteen hundred or something. The book. So I think we can just put in all the weird rust code in the in that <laughs> one. <laughs> anyway, um, I think that's a uh, that's a nice uh, nice segue to <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> to end this uh, end this podcast. Thanks a lot, uh, Jane, for taking the time. And uh, th- thanks again for all the amazing contributions that you're doing. Um, and, and good luck with the talk uh, that you're going to give soon. It's, it's RustConf, right? Um, yes. Yeah. So uh, where can people find it? Is it RustConf.something? Um, I think if you just like search on a search engine, RustConf, the, the website ah, will come okay. up. I don't, I don't remember the yeah. exact extension. Um, oh, sure, no problem. I think there, there are like so many... Uh, Apart from apart from dot dev, which is which Walter was trying to get, <laughs> I, was, I think it's like a generation a generational thing. Some people put bookmarks, and other people just Google it. Google, yeah, yeah. It's like a... <laughs> that's true. I think some people just type Facebook into Google and then click that link instead of typing facebook.com. Like, so. I, I mean, I don't. I'm not on Facebook, but I would definitely be that person. <laughs> 
<laughs> same anyway so um i hope you're you're staying safe and uh, good luck with the with with the talk and also all the all the contributions and uh, i think i would i would recommend people to take a look at um, the the awesome rust mentors right so they can find somebody to to ask questions uh, yeah. get on to discord yeah if you're just looking for someone to kind of like help and be encouraging awesome rust mentors is a great place if you're interested in like helping out and you want to like learn like mentor people is mentoring people is a great way to like refine your skills because you'll often get asked questions that you don't have like specific knowledge of and you get to oh. excuses to do research that's it's also uh, a great way so i recommend uh signing up if you are interested in that or we also are working on adding a project mentorship section so if you're interested in getting people contributing to your open source project um that you can sign up as like excited or willing to mentor people who are contributing to your project specifically as well. So definitely nice. check it out. Nice. Thank you. And uh, to the people who are listening out there, you can uh, tweet cute fox or cat pictures to Yasi, Yasi yes. underscore. <laughs> yes, there's a high probability I will retweet them. Like 50% of my feed is animal pictures and the other 50% is rust and shit posts. So. <laughs> That, that, that's what the world needs now totally yes <laughs> yeah okay thank you thanks thanks again yeah, um, thanks for having me yeah thank you very much it was a pleasure